Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on America, China, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the world. I'm Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and today on the Pacific Pod, on the Pacific Century podcast, we have our best guest ever, the most important guest, and a guest who has written an earth-shattering book. And I am talking, of course, about none other than my partner on this podcast. John Yu. So today, the focus is going to be entirely on John. Uh, John said not to read uh, an intro to him, but I realized we probably should because all we usually say is that he's a professor at Berkeley and he's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, but John is so much more than that. Uh, John is one of the leading legal scholars in America, clerking for Justice Clarence Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court and Judge Lawrence Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals of the D.C. Circuit. Uh, He served as the general counsel on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee in the mid-90s, and he was deputy assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. John went to uh, two small schools before holding these these important positions. He graduated from Harvard uh, with actually, and this warms my heart, a, a BA in American history. So he's actually an historian as well and then a JD from Yale Law School, right across the street from where I worked. We were probably there just about the same time. Uh, This is not, as you know, John's first book uh, that we're going to talk about in just a second, but he's written a number of books, The Powers of War and Peace, War by Other Means, Crisis and Command, Point of Attack, a whole bunch of other books, uh, both solo with others and edited. So John has really uh, captured the space of national security law, history, uh, obviously uh, the government mechanisms of, of, of making law and the like. But we are here in uh, specifically to talk about John's brand new book, Defender in Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, which was just released by St. Martin's Press, is getting rave reviews and, I might add, getting attention from the very highest levels of the American government including the subject himself. So with that, let me welcome as a guest, my co-host, John Yu. Oh, Misha, thanks for that uh, excessively florid introduction, because we do try to maintain the standards of Asian culture on this podcast. And as anyone who's ever gone to any speaking event in Asia, Asia, often the introductions are longer than the speeches themselves. The other thing is... The other thing I was just going to mention was that uh, this is a COVID edition of our podcast, so we can't afford to have any guests. We've got to make ourselves the guests. <laughs> well, not only that, John, this is actually in, in the sh- relatively short life of this show, which is about a year and a half now. We have two books. We've put out yeah. two books. I mean, we should we should pat ourselves on the back. I don't know if our listeners will, so we'll do it for ourselves. Yeah. And we're here to talk about your book. We've notched a second book, which is phenomenal. What the listeners don't know is that um, one of the, the great pleasures of doing this podcast is that John, who is centered in Silicon Valley, regularly drops off the podcast recording with the worst third world level connection of of broadband I've ever seen. So I wind up talking to myself <laughs> half the time with our producers while we wait for John to reconnect. So we've not only got COVID, we've got whatever wildfires have eaten through the wires leading to John's home. 
And hopefully we won't have these long pauses, but we're, we're thrilled because we're here to talk about Defender in Chief. Now, as I understand it, John, because I'm still waiting for my autographed embossed copy. You haven't received it yet? I haven't received oh it yet. Oh my gosh. I mean, I've, I've, actually, I've actually done my homework, but I haven't received my own copy. It's, of the it's actually, uh, it's a, I think it's probably stuck to your absentee ballot. It, it, well, it's Maryland, so so I should be getting six copies of the book <laughs> along with the ballots. Um, uh, so uh, what we understand, of course, is that broadly this is a book about uh, Donald Trump, uh, his governing style, um, his uh, um, the, you know his take taking on the administrative state, uh, but defending, of course, as you put it, the the powers of the presidency and the like. But we are a foreign policy podcast. We. Uh, well, you are a lawyer. I, I play one occasionally on the podcast, and so I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about anything related to your real area, but we're foreign policy. And so I think the big question our listeners have is what is the foreign policy angle to Donald Trump's being defender in chief and defending the prerogatives of the presidency? Do you talk about that in the book? Oh, yeah. In fact, I'd say about a third of the book is about things like war powers, foreign policy. And I'm curious to hear what you think. I tried to um, pull together whether there's a Trump doctrine. And uh, it was the hardest chapter, I think, of the book to write because if there's any area, sometimes it seems that uh, Trump is bouncing all over the place. It's probably in foreign policy. And and I think uh, many conservatives, I think including myself, who were not on the Trump bandwagon four years ago, probably the thing that concerned us most was how he would do in foreign policy, whether sort of this impulsive nature he has might lead to disaster. Um, and so uh, I, on the other hand, the reason I included so much of it in the book is because uh, foreign policy is where the president makes the biggest difference. It's the area where the president has the most power to act on his own or her own. And so I, I thought, even though it's a book about the Constitution and the law, and I, I, I'm sorry for inflicting that upon you, Misha, when you get the book along with your ballots, uh, it also should, I thought, include a significant discussion of Trump's policies because this is the two are, are intermixed in a way they may not be, <clears throat> excuse me, so much in domestic affairs. So let me uh, put it real quickly. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of that has to do with Asia. You know, if you look at a lot of the things people think might be impulsive about Trump's foreign policy, a lot of them have to do with Asia from, you know, his, uh, you know, one-on-one -on -one diplomacy with Kim Jong-un in North Korea, where I think Trump broke a lot of the sort of the normal patterns and practices of American diplomacy uh, to threatening to pull out of Japan and South Korea unless uh, we were paid more uh, to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and Trump's withdrawal uh, to actually amping up attacks on uh, the Chinese position on the South China Sea and China's economic, it's hard, what do you want to call it, you know, economic aggressiveness, uh, China's rise. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the use of constitutional power and legal power that Trump has exercised as president have also been focused, I think, on Asia. So my, my pitch is that uh, the way to understand Trump uh, it's not just all random impulsive actions, but that he does seem to be guided by this idea of restoring nation state sovereignty and a refocus on the 
sort of great power nature of international politics. And if you think about it that way, then of course the main focus of American national security and foreign policy should be Asia and China, because that's where the you can clearly see the weight of the gravity of the world is moving. That's why you and me, Misha, when we were uh, hanging out on our glorious travels to various Marriott's and Hilton's around the country doing talks, we decided to start this podcast. Well, exactly right. I mean, we 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 actually should do a show on the origin of the show. <laughs> Be like the origins of the Cold War. I think people, I, <laughs> exactly people would people would would love that. Um, no, I think I think you know what you're talking about is is actually fascinating, um, and, and we can come to it uh, a little bit later more directly. Um, a, a piece, an essay that I wrote for Foreign Policy, that talked about Trump's China policy and decoded it, and, and talked precisely about the fact that I think there is a strategy and there's there's a uh, there's a long term thought out plan. Now, how that's executed is is a different story. But to step a little bit back uh, to where you were talking about, I mean, this is. As you said, this is the great knock on Trump that actually started the first opposition to him, right, was a, the, the fear that what he might do. And when I say the opposition, I meant the opposition from uh, foreign policy uh, elites and, and those who were extremely worried about his statements on the campaign trail that he would, for example, walk away from NATO or he would force uh, our Asian allies, Japan and South Korea, to pay more for uh, their um, uh, their own defense, of course, ask NATO to pay more for his own defense. But really, what what I think the the, the real bottom line core of it was this issue that you just raised, which is the question of of right of nation state sovereignty in an international system. That of course the system itself is predicated on on nation state sovereignty, but since 1945 has evolved in a way that has become focused now on uh, on the institutions and the, the the supranational institutions that link nation states together whether it's the UN whether it is um uh you know uh, APEC for example or or these but how do you then interpret um uh some of the statements or did you use them in in the book you look at some of his um some of the really major um speeches that he gave early on, for example, the Warsaw speech, yes. you know, which was both a, a ringing defense of, um, uh, of Western civilization, but it was also very clearly, as was, I think, uh, the Hanoi speech, the same type of arguments about, of course, every state takes national interest as, as the, the starting point is almost a first principle. And then from that, how you work together while working with your, your, national interest. And, and these are the areas where, where for some reason, it's become extraordinarily um, controversial. I mean, first yeah. of all, what's your take on it? And then how did you weave that into the book to talk about the way that Trump has developed foreign policy? It's a good point. I mean, in, in sometimes we may, uh, you know, uh, studying diplomatic history, you're the guy who went all the way, you know, you're the, you're the guy who did what I should have done, which was you went and got the PhD and became a professor. I got a BA in diplomatic history, but then I got chicken and <laughs> went down and went to law school. Like, well, like my we age mom. Smart. My we age call mom it smart. Yeah. <laughs> I just listened to mom. <laughs> my, my Jewish mom wanted me to, and, and, and I defied her. So you, oh, know, you were, you were the good filial son. Asian moms and Jewish moms are almost the same thing in my 
in my book, just different different food groups, <laughs> but the same amount of food. <laughs> to steal a Churchill, there there are common people divided by soy sauce. <laughs> <laughs> there are common people divided by a different cuisine, right? Exactly. And by how you deliver salt in massive quantities. <laughs> But uh, no, it's. Uh, I've almost forgotten your question. But no, the the serious. So seriously, you know, when we do diplomatic history, you know, you start. You know, I kind of thought, look, we're interesting. Interestingly, I think we're kind of like at the start of the Cold War. And so when we study the start of Cold War, diplomatic historians like yourself focus excess, obsessively on things like NSC sixty eight and these position papers and deep thinking, right about um, the launch to strategy, which we everybody follow. everybody writes their own. <laughs> NFC 68. We yeah, probably exactly. had 10,000 of them, right? Everybody has a grand strategy yeah, containment. Exactly. Everybody has NSC 68. Everybody's Kissinger. It's, yes. it's crazy. <laughs> and so I thought um, Trump probably isn't like that. I mean, if there's any version of that for the Trump administration, what I started out with was our colleague H.R. McMaster's uh, national security strategy of the United States, which issued in about the first year, right at the end of the first year of the administration. But then I thought what's more telling and I think is at getting at the way President Trump thinks, I'm still a product of bureaucratic infighting were the speeches. So you rightly point out the Warsaw speech, the Hanoi speech. And then there's a third speech I thought was relatively undercovered in the press at the time, but is very important about how they think as uh, Secretary Mike Pompeo, he gave a speech in LA to the Claremont Institute. He won a, an award. And there really talks about <clears throat> how, if we do restore focus on the nations, he, talk, he goes through the same points, uh, Western civilization, defending the West, um, and it's no longer defending the West necessarily from Russia, it's defending the West from China. And then there was extensive discussion in the speech about how to approach things like international organizations, NATO, alliances. And it's interesting because maybe Trump didn't give the speech, instead Secretary of State did, but it was really much more a kind of things we, we're interested, you know, you and I are interested in, like, how, does, how do these broad proclamations really work? How are we really good? And in that speech, you know, Trump, Pompeo talked a lot about um, relying less on things like uh, the UN, relying less on international organizations, trying to form more ad hoc cooperate again, reminding you more of the great power, uh, classical balance of power world, ad hoc short-term cooperation to solve problems, but also uh, he didn't call it containment, but you can really see the aim is to draw together uh, an, an alliance, not necessarily a NATO that's going to be permanent geographically focused, but an alliance focused on China. And so I pull all those strands together to try to explain how foreign policy would work for Trump. What, I mean, what do you think? I mean, you mentioned your foreign policy piece, which I liked, but the you know everyone listening may not have read it. What do you? What, I mean, what do you think is the well, let me, before, elements of the strategy? Yeah, before we get uh, to that, and I'd like to, um, but let's can we dig a little bit deeper into this? And let's let's you know it's too easy, right, to simply say that the the fear uh, of what you know and I, I think it's it's certainly not a pejorative label of liberal internationalists the fear of the trump administration was that it would you know and you heard this over and over right it would destroy the you know, sort of destroy the post world war 2 liberal international order america would walk away from its leadership role whether in institutions or even when quite frankly it acted independently which it also got criticized for but it, it ostensibly acted in ways to uphold rules and norms in order. And you saw that 
for example, with um, uh, the Syria question of of pulling troops out of Afghanistan, and there was another announcement. But let's you know let's let's give the you know the I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. Not the benefit of the doubt, but the credence to the argument, and and then try to understand. Let me let me ask you it this way: Why has it become controversial for Pompeo and Trump to state that we should be thinking about the nation state first, and that nation states with common goals should come together. I mean, look, Obama campaign, well, let's go back. George Bush, today's 9-11. We're taping this on 9-11. I'm not sure when it'll probably be out either today or tomorrow. But George Bush campaigned, of course, on on really, you know, getting away from all the Clinton involvements around the world and, and uh, being a humble superpower and, of course, compassionate conservatism. And then 9-11 came and it completely transformed the nature of his presidency. Barack Obama campaigned exactly on not um, conducting these wars around the world and on, on getting out of them. He he didn't specifically, although he pulled troops out of Iraq. But, you know, a lot of what Trump said was not all that different from what Obama was saying. It wasn't different in some ways from what Bush was saying, the sort of let's fully grapple with what it means to be in a 21st century post-Cold War world. Why is it, do you think, that it's so controversial for the president or the secretary of state to talk about national interest as the building block of international relations and and hence of what international society is, even though international society might look different than what it has post-1945. It's a good point. You would have said, uh, you're a diplomatic historian, you might have said, isn't this obvious that we've always been doing this, <laughs> right? that the United States, could, you know, what, what else would you do? But I did remember there's this uh, great little book by George Kennan. You know, he wrote in the around 1950, 51, called American Diplomacy. And he, I think he said, you know, that is what the United States should always do. And it does really do that. But if you listen to what Americans say, they don't think they're doing that. They, what he called it, a legal moralistic view to foreign policy, which he faulted primarily uh, placed uh, at the foot of Woodrow Wilson. Uh, but he said that's always been a trend that's gone in American politics. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So uh, if you look at uh, what the government says, what presidents say, uh, and it, it has been, um, I think, just amplified under Clinton and George W. Bush and Obama, you would think we're not pursuing our national interest. We're pursuing uh, you know, global welfare all the time. You know, we're doing what's best for the world. We're intervening in all these hot spots to save the world from uh, the dangers of ungoverned places, like uh, that where terrorism arises, or we're acting to stop climate change. And uh, now, you, you, you know, you, you, the historian, you know, I think a lot of people like say, "Oh, that's not really what's going on," but uh, I think that's an unpleasant uh, truth. To say out loud is that we are always pursuing our national interests and really shouldn't do anything other than pursue our national interests. Even the you know the great world order that we create after 1945, why would we have done it if it weren't in America's national interest to create those systems? Sometimes I think uh, the Trump's critics they must realize that's what we do, but they don't like to hear it, and they don't like to hear that we're a great power and that we're just throwing our weight around, even if that's what we really have done these last 75 years. But isn't the argument that that uh, when they say you need to be involved in all these places, I mean, you, you called it trying to save the world, and isn't the argument that you have to be involved in part because, you know, disorder grows on its own accord, and if you don't 
tamp it down, then it, it's going to, you know, it's going to grow. It's going to metastasize mm -hmm. and, and eventually you'll have a larger breakdown of order um, that in a way it's almost oddly, it, it's almost a, it's almost an anti-Hayekian view with a Hayekian conclusion, which is mm -hmm. that the system is so complex, right? So Hayek is saying you can't have a, you can't have a, um, a, a you know, a centralized guided economy because the, 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 the millions and trillions of individual interactions mean that every time you try to insert the state into it, you're just going to mess it up. But in a way, Misha, I'm, rubbing, I'm rubbing off on you. Yeah, yeah there you go. It's, it's happening. You've been, look, we've been doing this for I'm rubbing 18 off months my, now, right? My tax on the federal government's over excessive powers have finally rubbed off on you. It's, it's getting there. I'm, I'm, I'm an acolyte. I'm grasshopper. But, but the... Right, but but so it's, it's almost an inverse, which is to say the international system is so complex and there's so many different interactions that if you don't have the active hand of the United States involved, that's the anti-Hayekian view, then the Hayekian complexity of the international system can't be sustained. Right, so you, you've got, it, it's almost a, a paradox. You've got to do the thing that you would normally say you shouldn't do, which is intervene in order to maintain a system that is so complicated that you actually want to for the most part, let it work the way that it, it's going to work. But you can only do that by actually being active. Does that make sense? I mean, that's why I think they're saying, how can you leave Somalia alone? How can you leave Syria alone? How can you leave X or Y alone? You must get involved. And so, look, there's a there's a huge strand of thought, right to protect, or, or, or sorry, responsibility to protect, you know, things like that coming out of the 1990s when Clinton didn't act, uh, you know, uh, in in uh, which they wouldn't call genocide because of legal constraints that you then it would force you to do certain things all the way up to, you know, if, if Trump pulls, doesn't get involved in Syria, then, you know, it's we've given it back over to the Russians. I mean, what, why isn't the argument give the Middle East to the Russians? Let them deal with it. Why? Why should we be dealing with it? Yes, I, I actually this is the subject of my uh, book two two books ago. Um, which was called Point of Attack. And I think there's a, a kind of tragedy to it all. And there is a tragedy. It's not just uniquely American, but I, I, the way I would put it, you're exactly the same argument, just in different sort of economic terms, is to say, uh, and it occurs, it's domestic affairs too. Uh, you know, domestic affairs, there are certain things we call public goods, which are, have to be provided by a government because the market can't provide it. And those are basic things like law and order, you know, uh, a stable, unified market, security. Uh, these are classic things where if left to your, my, your devices or my devices, we would just free ride off of everybody else taking care of security. We wouldn't pay for it unless we're forced to. And you look at the international level, your point is just all of those problems are worse, right? That nobody has an interest in providing any kind of global stability or an international trade system because you, you, it's too expensive for any one state to do it. Right? You're, you're essentially, if you provide international security, as the United States, I think, has since 1945, you spend billions of dollars a year, right? We spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year. What we're really trying to do is maintain everybody else in the world benefits, and they don't pay for it, right? They, they free ride off of us. Same with international trade. You know, we are the we are, we, since 1945, we're the ones who really have developed and maintained this international trade system. But everyone else free rides off it, right? Europe and Japan and all the, and then the, the Asian tigers all benefited from the American international trade system. Uh, and so the tragedy is it's best for the world uh, 
to for somebody to provide that. And different countries have, like Great Britain did in the 19th century. The United States didn't in the first half of the 20th century look at the terrible things that happened. And then we did so in the second half of the 20th century, look at the wonderful things that happened. But the tragedy is one country can't pay for it. In fact, if, the, if our strategy is successful as it has been, we have created the conditions for our rivals to prosper and and threaten our control of the system and makes it even and so i think i kind of see trump as this guy who's just openly saying what a lot of presidents must have known and thought about before which and have complained about off and on i think all the way back even to eisenhower which is you know the Amer united states is you know has been spending trillions of dollars essentially over decades to support a system where yes we benefit but the rest of the world benefits more and we're kind of running a deficit uh, about it now, well, and the tragedy is the system, as you say, Misha, is going to start deteriorating. We have to—it's going to be replaced by something. It's not like the world has no order, but it's not necessarily going to be the ones that we dictate. Well, I think in some ways, I mean, Trump's argument is more uh, nuanced. Not to say you're not saying it's nuanced, but I think because part of what he campaigned, of course, against was precisely that radical open um, borders trades regime, right, that that has hollowed out the American heartland. Uh, that was a huge part of the campaign. That's really probably what won him the election was, was you know, uh, large swaths of uh, rusting, you know, Rust Belt states and middle American states that uh, had actually not benefited from the global regime that we paid billions of dollars to uphold. And so, ironically, there's almost you know, there's there's a there's another level of what he's doing, which is that, as you started out, I think early on, you stated, you know, he pulled out of the TPP, although we have negotiated a um, a basic agreement with Japan to to mm -hmm. replace that, uh, and really it was the U.S. and Japan that were the core of TPP. Without yeah. the U.S. and Japan, they're much smaller trade packs. So, mm -hmm. if your question is, would you rather have a TPP without Japan or a TP or or a U.S. Japan trade pack? You know, overall, you want a U.S. Japan trade pack. Yeah. It's nice to get the TPP. And we should, I think, probably go back into it. But anyway, I agree. But my point is that, you know, what Trump was also saying is that, yeah, we're paying billions of dollars to uphold a system that actually hasn't benefited all Americans. It's benefited Wall Street and it's benefited certain groups, but it hasn't benefited all Americans. And I don't think anyone thinks that he's entirely against trade. And his administration has repeatedly stated what we want is fair trade, not just free trade, because free trade is often unfair trade. And we've seen that. Clearly, that's the tack he's taken against China, but but it, it's an interesting point, which is that you know Trump were were okay. It's the election, so it's four years now, basically, right? Three years and whatever nine months since he took over, or something like that. Um, we still have NATO. We still have Japan and Korea as allies. We haven't we haven't walked away from any ally. Yeah, we walked out of TPP. We've talked about that. We, there were the Paris peace Paris. Not the peace accords. That was yeah. that was Nixon. So we should have walked out of those. But, you know, we, we we walked out of Paris. Climate. Think of all or, the bad things that have happened in yeah. Paris. The Treaty of Versailles. Is there anything good that happens in Paris? Paris Let's be quite honest. Words, right. Just this, don't have this, any more diplomatic conferences in Paris. This program needs to attack Paris much more often. But I totally. Agree. But anyway, you know, look, I, I and I argue this with my friends uh, who are on the other side, and I say, okay, tell me what Trump has done. Yeah. specifically and and, and so, so they always bad. bring up tpp and they bring up climate uh and a few other things walking out of the who but that would not have happened if it hadn't been for uh you know, beijing's yeah beijing's manipulation of the who during the pandemic it was obviously manipulating it before mm -hmm. so again so there's a much more nuanced approach and maybe maybe uh, I'll, I'll just shift 
now into asking you about the China angle. And, and what I wrote in this foreign policy piece uh, is that Trump actually has a nuanced approach to China and he has, and he has a strategy and the strategy is very simple. It's reciprocity. The strategy is reciprocity. The, the strategy for 40 years was radical engagement with no limits, meaning we would do anything we could to get China as engaged in the global economy and global political system and so on and so forth. We would take as many of their students as would come, 300,000, over 300,000 a year. Uh, we would uh, bring it into all the high-level meetings, so on and so forth. And as a result, what we found out is that they were they were abusing our our goodwill. They were stealing from us, and they were um, they were undermining free speech. They were doing all the things that we've talked about on this program. Yeah. And so Trump came to office and basically said, "Enough." Now, I think he what he did is he combined strands on the left about trade and on the right about national security and sort of cultural issues and the like, and and put them into this new um, this new idiom of reciprocity that itself is not new, but it, it is applied to China, where, which said, look, it's up to you. If, if you want to treat us equally, then you'll have the full access. And if you don't, then we're going to take measured, um, justified, reciprocal actions, right? Um, what's the word? Not just, but they're, they're bound. They, they are equivalent what what's the word i'm looking yeah, for you know, like, word you know no they're even retaliatory <laughs> yeah they're not, no they're not retaliatory they're 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 commensurate right it's commensurate with the harm measures is what we call yeah, it's it. all, right yeah. you know so we're not closing off all society to yes. american society to china so he, so he did do that and, and and then he negotiated a trade agreement with them so so again what i think confounds analysts and certainly confounds his critics is that he seems to be doing things on all different angles at once, right? Which seems pulling back from post-1945, but then pushing ahead in other ways, recalibrating what was done after 1979 with China, uh, but then engaging in the most far-reaching negotiations. So how do you put all that together? I with yeah, I agree. So yeah, so I, the way I try to think of it, and I, I completely agree with your, what you said in your piece in foreign policy, and I think it should be read widely, because a lot of people, I think, as you say, they just launch on the attack on Trump and they don't try to see that every administration is reacting to world events and is trying and will be acting in a certain way with a certain coherence, even if they don't know it just by reacting by day by day. You know, I have to say, that, you know, a gas molecule, when it moves around, it might look random, but it's acting according to circumstances and certain laws. And I think that's true of the Trump administration. So I, the way I think of it is, uh, and the way I put it, I also put it in a constitutional setting, but um, it, it kind of makes sense to me. So if you really focus on uh, nation-state great power rivals to the United States. The only one that's really a foreseeable long-term threat is China um, in terms of population and economy. I mean, you just look at the right the realists, you know, they like to say, okay, here's how much oil you can produce and steal, and that leads to military power. If you look at those charts, there's nobody close to us other than China. And then like, there's China, and then there's a huge drop-off in capability, right? And then so we would focus on China inevitably. And so then what would you do? I think it's exactly what you described. You would uh, maintain the status quo in the places that work, like NATO, right? You don't want to have to devote resources to Europe. NATO keeps uh, you know, everything working pretty well. Uh, Trump has suggested we would pull out if we don't uh, have more spending by the European allies. But on the other hand, <clears throat> he hasn't pulled out, as you say. Um, it does seem to perform its longer-term purpose. Remember, that's there's that fellow um, 
uh, that British guy, Lord, what's his name, Islay, I think, or Inslay, who said, you know, the purpose of NATO is to keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. And it still performs that function today. Uh, and then you would decrease our commitment in places that have been really uh, a have been a drain, which is obviously the Middle East. Uh, I mean, even though we've done things, I think, remarkable things in the diplomatic front uh, by uh, producing uh, the conditions for har uh, more harmony between Israel and the Arab countries. At the same time, uh, Can, we are reducing me, our troop presence. We right. Are, let me, uh, oh. I was say, let me break in at that point with breaking yeah. news, although it'll be well-known news by the time our listeners hear this, is that um, Israel and Bahrain are signing a peace agreement right now. Yeah, that's. I mean, think about that. I mean, could we have seen four years ago that Israel would be normalizing relations slowly now and steadily with – now it's two Arab countries, two more right. additional Arab countries. Right. Uh, right. It's, don't, and don't, I mean, this, you know, we're, we're uh, Asia-focused podcast, but it seems to me inevitable that you're going to have Saudi Arabia on, on that list soon and other countries, uh, bigger countries that will start normalizing relations now. Um, and, and many say they're already de facto. There's a lot of cooperation anyway. But you're right. That, I mean, that actually makes – that's a diplomatic improvement, right? What you want to do – and this is, shows that diplomacy has an important function. It's not just armies that – set national security and foreign policy strategy. We are actually using diplomacy to create order in the Middle East so we can pull out resources. And we are, you know, I think under Trump, rapidly moving them, uh, those military and diplomatic resources over to Asia. And that's why, and that's, again, it goes to the origins of the Pacific Century podcast. You can see that the Pacific is going to be the focus of our foreign policy and national security for the next De next several decades. And so I think Trump has been successful there. And putting it differently, it's hard to imagine, no matter who wins this presidential election, no matter who's in charge of foreign policy, that we will go back to treating China the same way we did in a mere three and a half years ago. Yeah, I think I that is a remarkable permanent change in foreign policy has been a bipartisan now attitude towards China. I agree with that. And we should, you know, as we get closer to the election, we should probably do a, a you know, a, a show on what a likely Biden-China policy would be yes, or, or Asia policy and then, uh, you know, a Trump-2 uh, policy. And, and I think you're right. I, I've called it the great convergence or the great fusion that, that Trump came into office, um, you know, taking, again, largely Democratic and labor dissatisfaction with free trade uh, and and things like TPP, and then conservative and GOP dissatisfaction on national security issues issues like uh, the um, uh, the South China Sea and cyber and the like, and fuse them together in this new hardline uh, against China. Or I mean, hardline is an easy thing to say. I mean, I think a more realistic. It's a realistic policy, and it does. You're very right to start quoting H.R. Uh, McMaster's uh, national security strategy. It starts from there, in which China is identified correctly as a strategic competitor. Uh, it doesn't mean you don't work with it, and that's what I think is the beauty of the reciprocity policy is essentially you're saying, look, the, the tenor of this relationship is up to you. If you act as all of our other friends and partners act, then we, well, you'll be treated like one. But if you don't, then you won't. Uh, and, and I think that that you know, if other presidents had taken that approach and had also done it in such a, quite frankly, a, such a measured sort of step-by-step-by-step by step by step, um, implementation, they'd be lauded for it. 
you know, if, if Trump had slapped 25% tariffs on all of Chinese goods, all 350 billion right on the bat, then yes, the, the global economy would have would have imploded. But he didn't do that. It took it took two years to get to a staggered step, you know, measures of of tariffs. And and the and then they were negotiating at the same time. Uh, and so I think if it were other presidents that were doing that with China, or to expand to what you were just talking about, other presidents that were doing it with uh, getting two Arab states to sign peace treaties with Israel in the space of one month, I mean, the, the hosannas would be would be showering down, but they're not. And so I guess that leads to my maybe my last question for you on on the book, um, though there's a lot much, you know, there's a lot more to talk about it. Um, has Trump been a successful president in foreign policy? Has has he um, created more resistance than uh, than um, than than cooperation? Has he? Has he undercut his own victories? Has he notched victories versus um, defeats? How, how do you assess him from the foreign policy angle, John? That's a really hard question to answer, a tough, tough question. And I guess what I would say, I mean, the way I look at it in the book is, you know, more the powers he used to try to achieve this agenda. Um, but, you know, if you measure... Part of it depends on how you define what success is, of course. Uh, To me, I think Trump has been successful in the sense that uh, the world was moving this way. This was the rational thing for the United States to do. In in foreign policy, right, we often say, you know, your means and ends have to be in alignment. And America, I think, doesn't have the freedom it used to have to just – pick willy-nilly amongst many different ends for our foreign policy, like fixing the world, you know, ending all genocides in the world, you know, free trade for everybody in the you know, maybe at one time we could do that, but, uh, you know, our our ends are set in part by the, as you were pointing out at the very beginning, Misha, by the circumstances we face set by millions of interactions in the world that constrains what we can do. Um, so to me, it seems that Trump... Uh, and maybe he's just pursuing his political interests. Maybe he's responding to what a lot of millions of Americans sense is the right thing to do, which is to reorient rapidly to Asia, to focus on China, to right, just to maintain a holding action in Europe and to reduce our, you know, our commitments in the Middle East. Maybe the mark of a good statesman is to realize what is going to happen inevitably anyway and to move us along in that direction faster and more easily and with least cost and least resistance uh, as possible. And, uh, you know, and then diplomacy maybe is the trans, what we think the economists call the transaction costs of that. You know, diplomacy is, you know, given that that's what we have to do, diplomacy can help us do that or diplomacy done wrong can really increase the costs as we try to rebalance towards Asia. Just the contrast with the Obama administration, I think the Obama administration at the time, a lot of uh, fancy IR people, I'm sorry, international relations people, foreign policy people were in love with the Obama administration because their rhetoric was so good. And they did claim noble aspirations. But if one way to me, if you look at it from this lens, the Obama administration was somewhat of a failure in foreign policy because they resisted the inevitable uh, movement towards our commitments and our aims. So they, you know, they said there was going to be a pivot to Asia, but they never did it. And they did end up pouring lots of resources into the Middle East and Europe, uh, uh, which gave China, in a way, eight more years to keep going down a bad path. And 
uh, and America thought that relationship was fine. So uh, even though if you were maybe if you did a poll at the end of each each term of office of Obama and Trump, uh, you know, these uh, scholars would have the exact opposite view that I'm setting out here. I think they were wrong. It reminds me actually of the poll they did of presidents at the end of the Reagan administration of historians and presidential historians ranked Reagan at the end is in the bottom 25 percent of all American presidents. You know, now those same scholars rank him as one of the top 10 presidents in American history uh, because they realized looking back that he right, he accelerated certain positive trends for the United States and stopped harmful ones. Maybe that's I'm not comparing Trump to Reagan by any means, but maybe that's a sign of a successful foreign policy president. And maybe that's something the Trump administration can claim credit to in a way that Obama could not now that we have we have the benefit of hindsight. Well, I think you're spot on. I think that is actually a great summation, and we could we could go on about the differences. I, I think the um, uh, you were talking about, you know, recognizing the trends and then moving to meet them. The Obama administration clearly recognized the trend, uh, but they they moved. I would argue without purpose. They they yeah. it was it was rhetoric. Uh, now, that's not fully true because they did do TPP, and I think TPP was important, but it was also their failure, his failure, not yes. to be able to get it ratified by a Senate that he controlled at the and time. And their leading candidate for the office said that she would <laughs> terminate it anyway. Exactly. It was going to happen under Hillary in one way or, or Donald Trump in another way. But I think largely there was less purpose. I wouldn't say entirely no, because I don't think that's fair, but there, there was certainly less purpose to the Obama pivot and far more purpose to the to the Trump pivot um, to Asia. Uh, but you're right, historians will have to assess it. Um, that doesn't bring in, we, have, we haven't talked about North Korea and the fact that, that Trump really had very few options and decided to go big and go for a major breakthrough, meaning meeting with Kim Jong-un himself and trying to get him uh, nailed down to a, to an agreement, and that has not happened yet. But it it certainly, um, in essence, it was the only new play that you could think of. There was nothing else new to do with North Korea. We had negotiated for twenty five years. We would be negotiating again for twenty five years, and that's of course exactly what the North Koreans want. So you, you try you try something differently. There's there have been other changes that the Trump administration has made. For example, freedom of navigation operations, where they are doing them monthly, uh, and sometimes twice a month. Uh, now, that doesn't change um, the facts on the sea that China has built and militarized islands and, and the like, uh, but, it, but it also is a very, very different approach and a very different statement of American will than what you saw from the Obama administration. So, um, it, you know, it'll be fascinating, obviously, down the road to see how all historians treat Trump once it's long past his time in office and he's no longer tweeting and no longer doing the things that, that gets them upset. But I think if you look objectively at it, which your, your book certainly does and certainly takes this, this, um, this longer view, um, this is, this, you, I think you're absolutely right in the way that you, assess, that you assess Trump. So congratulations on the book. Everyone should read it. Once again, it is Defender in Chief. It is available at fine bookstores near you or online everywhere. And you should be one of those who reads what John has to say about this brave new world that we are in. So, John, thank you so much. Misha, thanks a lot. And as usual from our episodes on this podcast, I, 
I benefited far more than you. <laughs> I learned a lot more about <laughs> Asia and foreign policy than I contributed, which is <laughs> never, <laughs> never for the course. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Equal partnership. <laughs> no, it's been, no, it's been great to have an episode talk about my book. It was great to have an episode talk about your book. And hopefully we'll keep scribbling away and we'll be uh, able to do more of these in the next few years as we keep put, putting out these books after books. That and copious <laughs> amounts of, of new. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Misha. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. 